Well, we're back together again in Matthew's gospel. It's been a little while, I know, for, for many of us. And I want to give you an opportunity now to go ahead and grab your Bible during this um, time of the COVID when we're doing church at home. I'm, I'm hoping that it's creating some new habits for all of us. I know it has been for our family. We, we, since we have more time together, it's given us more opportunities to get in the Word of God together. Uh, but one of the other things that I, that I hope it's creating for you is the convenience being at home, knowing right where your Bible is. And so when you're, when you're sitting down to listen and watch the sermon, I, I, I pray and that, that you would begin to, to see that having your Bible open during that time is really important. So turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 13. And we're just going to go for two verses today. Matthew chapter 13, verses 51 and 52. It's the last of the parables in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, 51. Hope you're there now. Jesus, our Lord, says this. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we look to, to your word this morning, that you would give us understanding. It's not immediately apparent what is meant when we read this passage. It's not, it's not a parable, Lord, that we look at and go, that applies directly to my life, and I know exactly how to use this. And so oftentimes, Lord, we skim past it. Would you cause us to pause this morning and to wonder why it is we haven't looked more carefully at these two verses? And Lord, as we look at them this morning, would you open our hearts and open our ears and open our eyes to understand what they mean? Give us understanding. Give us wisdom, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I want us to think this week about what it means to be a disciple. When we think about discipleship and disciple making and being a disciple, a learner of Christ, what does that mean? Are we discipling people when we teach them about the Christian worldview? Are we making disciples in our Sunday school classes when we walk through a Lifeway quarterly together? When we sit down with someone, another individual, and we memorize scripture together, is that, is that making disciples? How about when I preach or when anyone else is, is preaching? Is that disciple making? How about showing people how to live? Is that disciple making? Well, in some ways, all of these are, are methods that are useful in disciple making, aren't they? But what I want to see what I want us to see from our text this morning is that making disciples of Jesus Christ, or as we've come to see, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the content, the content is just as important, if not more important than the method. Certainly there are some 
methods that are more effective than others. And the Bible is not silent about methods. We did an entire series beginning in January on the means of grace, the methods of disciple making. But effective methods are useless without the right content. Just as an example, in the days before the COVID dispensation, I coached my son's little league team. I could have taught all the right methods. I could have used all the right methods for teaching the game of baseball. I could have, I could have used a one-on-one coaching. We could have done drills together. I could have moved them through different stations. We could have had scrimmages and practice games. I could be a master at getting nine-year-olds and eight-year-olds to pay attention and do exactly what I was instructing. But if I teach them to throw with the wrong arm or, or to catch a ball with their eyes closed or to swing the bat like a golf club, my, my work would be fruitless, wouldn't it? I'd be creating bad and ineffective disciples of the game. Well, it, it's obvious in baseball that the content of what I teach is absolutely crucial. Method is important, but, but content is more so. You can drill and drill and drill and practice and practice and practice, but if you're not teaching the game that it's the way that it's meant to be played, you're wasting your time. And that's obvious in baseball. But for whatever reason, it's not so obvious in Christianity. While we would be quick to say to anyone trying to catch a baseball with their eyes closed, that is the wrong way to catch a baseball, we're a lot more hesitant to say that there's a wrong way to disciple others or to teach Christianity. We tend to think of Christianity as more personal, don't we? As an example, think for, the, for a moment about the last time you were in a small group Bible study. For some of you, it's been a very long time. For some of you, it was just last Tuesday as the men's group gathered together on Zoom but what, what are some of the, the common comments that you hear when you're taking part in a group, a small group Bible study? Think about it. Think about something that you'll hear. Here's one of these common phrases. What this means to me is, or what I believe about this is, or, well, I think, you catch the theme there? It's subjectivity. Right? The, the Bible means what I think it means or what I believe it means. And, and a lot of the reason for this is the way that we have evangelized Christianity over the last half century or probably full century. And, and here's, here's been kind of our, our message. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Jesus came to fix your life to make everything better for you and to give you meaning and purpose. What's the focus on that message? It's on the individual, isn't it? And if Christianity is fundamentally about me, then when I read the Bible, my assumption is then, well, this book must be about me. And so we... uh, doing the best that we can with the tools that we've been given. And we, we go around digging throughout the Bible for, for all these little pieces that we think will complete our personal puzzles. 
And if we feel like a particular piece doesn't have a direct application to our life, well, well then it's, it's irrelevant. And so we skim past it. Studying the Bible like that is like trying to catch a baseball with your eyes closed. Imagining where you want the ball to be rather than seeing where it actually is. That's a very good way to end up with a black eye or a bloody nose or to miss the ball altogether. What our passage this morning teaches us, what Jesus teaches us, is that, that a scribe, what we'll soon see is a discipled disciple-maker, the disciple-making scribe is to disciple or to, to teach others paying very careful attention to the content. And what is that content? Look with me at verse 52. I hope you have your Bible open. Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Bringing out the old with the new, that is how we're to read and understand Christianity. And we're going to examine this morning exactly what that means. What does it mean to bring out the old with the new? First, though, we, we've got to look at what Jesus means by scribe. What's a scribe? When he says every scribe, in verse 52, every scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven, what does that mean? I told you a moment ago that, that the scribe is a discipled or trained disciple maker. And if you're thinking, but, but what, isn't a scribe about scribing, scribbling, writing things down? Isn't a scribe the guy sitting in a room making copies of scrolls or something like that? Well, not really. Scribes in the Bible were writers who wrote not as copyists, but as interpreters. And they, didn't just, they didn't just write. They taught. In fact, scribes were first and foremost foremost known as teachers. Think with me back to the end of Matthew 7. So we get to the end. Jesus teaches Matthew 5 through 7 through the Sermon on the Mount. And then what happens there? You remember what Matthew told us? Look at Matthew 7, 29. We'll put it up here on the screen for you. He says, the crowds were amazed because he, Jesus, was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. What does that tell us? Well, that tells us that scribes were teachers and that the way that Jesus taught was different, more authoritative than the way that the scribes had been teaching. Something else to note, though, is that an Old Testament scribe was in the employment of a king. So you'll see this in the books of Chronicles or in the books of Kings. You go back and read those and you'll see that kings often had scribes in their employment. So kings such and such employed or had so-and-so as a scribe is kind of a common refrain you'll see in those four books. And one of the scribes' jobs was to record what the king said and tell others. So they were also historians recording what was happening under a particular 
king's rule so that future generations would know about it. So whoever wrote the book of Chronicles, for instance, and we probably think that it's Ezra, well, he would have been known as a scribe. He's, he's taking for us the events of history and interpreting them through a biblical lens. That's what a scribe does. You should also know this. Scribes in the Old Testament belonged to the priestly class. They were Levites. So, so they were trained to teach and interpret God's word. So, so a, an Old Testament scribe's job could be summarized like this. To fulfill the duties of a priest by teaching and interpreting scripture. And to faithfully record and spread the message and legacy of the king. That's kind of a mouthful, isn't it? Let me, let me say it again. To fulfill the duties of a priest by teaching and interpreting scripture and to faithfully record and spread the message and legacy of the king. That's what an Old Testament scribe did. So let's pick up that idea and let's transport it now into the new heavenly kingdom that Jesus has inaugurated. And we'll put it this way. Scribes trained for the kingdom of heaven are teachers of the faith who work for King Jesus. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Scribes of the kingdom of heaven are teachers of the faith who work for King Jesus. There's one more thing I want to show you, though. Before we move on from what a scribe is, I want you to look at Matthew 23. And we'll put this verse up on the screen for you, too, so you don't have to flip there. But at the beginning of Matthew 23, we get these seven woes, and we'll get there soon enough. But Jesus pronounces these seven woes over the scribes and Pharisees. And then at the end of the chapter, in Matthew 23, verse 34, we get this interesting verse I'm going to show you. Jesus says this. He says, therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. And we see that happen in Acts, don't we? The, those that Jesus sends are persecuted, even in the synagogue. But Jesus is saying here, he is sending, don't miss that word. Jesus is sending prophets, wise men, and scribes. New kingdom scribes then are teachers of the faith who are sent out by Jesus, King Jesus, to teach. In other words, scribes are sent out to make disciples. So, so when we get to Matthew 28, and I, well, we'll get there one day. But don't, don't think that the Great Commission in Matthew 28 comes out of nowhere. Jesus is building up that commissioning from Matthew 1 all the way to Matthew 28. Throughout the book, Jesus is preparing his scribes, his disciples. He's training them to train others. So if you, Christian, are a disciple of Christ, then in many ways, you are a scribe. You have the responsibility then to undergo training. You have the responsibility to read and understand the Bible the way that it was meant to be read and understood. And you have the responsibility to teach others. Maybe it won't be in a classroom. Maybe it won't be leading a small group. Maybe it won't be from a pulpit. But you're teaching someone. You're always teaching 
someone. Whether it's your kids or your coworkers or your friends or your neighbors, God has put you in somebody's orbit and he's called, he's called you to teach them about the kingdom of King Jesus. Disciple making is built into Christianity. You have the responsibility to be trained, to understand, and to teach. And we'll look at that in just a little bit. But as you mull over that responsibility and let that kind of settle deep into your heart, let's look back at what the content of our training as Christians is to be. Let's look back at verse 52. A scribe or a disciple trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who brings out of his treasure the new and the old. So what is that? What does it mean to bring out the new and the old? Well, to bring out the new and the old means to teach from all of Scripture that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messiah promises and prophecies given to Israel. And that he's ushering in the kingdom that was promised long ago. That really is what Christianity is. And kingdom scribes or disciples or to show, or to be able to show how that is true. We've we've seen this throughout Matthew's gospel, haven't we? Matthew's gospel quotes the Old Testament 61 times. Direct quotes, 61 times. And if you count all of the allusions to the Old, not illusions with an I, but allusions with an A, all the times that he refers to the Old Testament, that number comes to 300 Think about that. In 28 chapters, Matthew alludes to the Old Testament 300 times. That's a lot. And why does he do that? Because that is how you prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And what we'll see this morning is that Matthew learned how to do this from Jesus himself. Jesus was the original master of the house, bringing out the old with the new. And he's been doing this throughout Matthew's gospel, starting with the Sermon on the Mount and continuing on from there. I want to show you in particular for the next few minutes just how Jesus has been doing this with the parables that we've studied in Matthew chapter 13. So chapter 13 of Matthew, the parables chapter, will be our case study for bringing out the new and the old, all right? So so go back to the beginning of Matthew 13. Should be a page before where you are right now. And let's examine each of these parables very quickly and see how Jesus is bringing out the new and the old for us. And what that will do is it will show us exactly how to disciple others, how to show others how what the Old Testament points to is Jesus Christ and his kingdom. So the first parable we came to in Matthew 13 begins in verse 3, and that was the parable of the sower, several weeks ago now. And the big idea there is that that the one who has understanding, that was the one in the good soil, he is the one or she is the one who bears fruit. That's not new, is it? That's not a new teaching. Jesus didn't just come up with that out of nowhere. That's as old as Proverbs chapter 2. Understanding brings fruitfulness. And behind the scenes, behind the scenes, when the disciples ask, 
what's going on here? Why are you teaching in parables? Do you remember that question? And Jesus is telling his disciples that the one who gets this understanding, this knowledge of the kingdom, is the one who has gotten it from the Lord. Again, that comes from Proverbs chapter 2. But also think of Joseph in Genesis. Do you remember the way that Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams? Where did he get that understanding? Joseph tells us in Genesis, Genesis, I got that from the Lord. Or think of the way that Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. Where did Daniel get that understanding to the secret things? He got that from the Lord. The Lord revealed the hidden things to Daniel. The Lord revealed the hidden things to Joseph. And and what Jesus is teaching the disciples is the Lord has revealed the hidden things of the kingdom to you. Wisdom about the things of the Lord doesn't come to us naturally. It's given to us by the Lord. And that's an old idea. I think old is an old idea taught by Jesus from a new perspective. Because he's answering, Jesus is answering the disciples a question that they had. Essentially, the parable of the sower is a parable about parables. The point is that some will hear and not understand, and that fulfills what Isaiah chapter 6 told us, and some will hear and understand, and that fulfills what we saw in Psalm 78. In fact, Matthew quotes both of those things. He he quotes Matthew 6 in, or Isaiah 6 in Matthew 13 verse 14, and then he quotes Psalm 78 in Matthew 13, 35. But I want to read for you real quickly Psalm 78, just to kind of give us a picture of how parables work and how the old is being brought out with the new through Jesus's use of parables. Look at Psalm 78 with me. I have this one on the screen for you as well. I will open my mouth in a parable. This is from the Old Testament. Psalm 78. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings or hidden sayings of old things. Here it is, old. I will utter dark sayings of old things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. So the old is being revealed to the new through the use of parables. So so already the idea of parables uh, being a part of the inaugurated kingdom of Jesus, Matthew is saying, that's an old idea, as old as the Psalms. But it's being applied to new ears and to new listeners so that we will better, better understand the nature of the kingdom. Well, after that, we had another parable about the nature of the kingdom And we saw that beginning in verse 24. So look at Matthew 13, 24. You remember the parable of the wheat and the weeds? Austin brought us through this passage of scripture. And we see there in that parable that the Lord would plant the good seed in the field. Well, that is a reference to God planting his people in Israel in the last day. It's mentioned several times in the Old Testament. God planting his vineyard, God planting his field. But we see it most clearly in Amos chapter 9, verse 15. Look there with me. And I have that one on the screen as well. The Lord says that in the last day, he, the Lord, will plant them in the land. In other words, in the days of Messiah's kingdom, that's the last days, the days of the coming Messiah, 
the Lord will be the one who plants his people in the kingdom. And Jesus is saying by talking about the Lord planting his field, he's teaching us that that old prophesied kingdom exists now. God is planting his redeemed children in his kingdom now. But that heavenly kingdom will coexist with the kingdom of the world all the way up to judgment day. And on that day, we got more Old Testament coming your way. On that day, on judgment day, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now, that's not a new saying. That's an old saying. When Jesus says that, he's quoting Daniel chapter 12. It comes from Daniel 12. The righteous shining like the sun, that comes at the end of days. And Jesus, by quoting that passage from Daniel 12 in this new parable, he's saying those last days have begun now. My kingdom has been inaugurated now. The last days have begun. The planting has begun. But the last days aren't complete. Judgment hasn't come yet. The shining of the righteous ones hasn't come yet. The the new kingdom is just as the old teachings said it would be. But it's different than the people expected. And that's what Jesus is showing us. Well, the next parables begin in verse 31. If you're continuing in Matthew 13, 31, and this gets really cool, so bear with me. I get kind of excited, okay? So, so in verse 31, Jesus compares the arriving kingdom to mustard seed and leaven. These two kind of obscure objects. Mustard seed is this teeny tiny seed. It starts out very small, very small, and then begins to sprout and take root and grow and grow and grow. And we've seen mustard. It's growing wild right now all around us. But then Jesus takes that little mustard plant that started out very small and says, it keeps going. And it keeps going until it's so big that the birds of the air come and make nests in that plant. What's Jesus doing here? Well, he's either really ignorant about how big mustard seeds get, or he's teaching us more than than agricultural principle. There are no mustard plants that grow so big that birds of the air make nests in it. All right? There's not like different mustard plants in Israel than there are today. Maybe they have slightly different species or varieties, but tree-sized mustard plants is not a thing. And it never was. And Jesus, the eternal son, the word of God who spoke creation into existence, knows that mustard plants don't grow to be trees. But he's not saying that they do. He's saying that the kingdom of heaven starts out really, really small, like mustard seeds small, like disciples in the upper room small. And then it grows over time into a massive tree, or in other words, a powerful kingdom. To to understand this parable, we have to bring out the old with the new, okay? In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is compared to a great tree where birds of all sorts lived in the branches, which is to say that the Babylonian kingdom was a great kingdom. 
And we see this also in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 31, the kingdom of Assyria is compared to a great and mighty tree where birds dwell in the branches. It was a big kingdom, a massive kingdom. But catch this, in Ezekiel 17, God says he's going to take a little tiny sprig of a branch from a tree, from the tippy top of a tree, a little branch, and he's going to plant it in Israel, and it's going to grow so big and so tall and so massive that birds of all nations, birds of all sorts, will dwell there, which is to say people from all nations will be in God's kingdom. That's how God's future kingdom is prophesied to be. What's even cooler in Ezekiel 17 is that the Lord says he's going to make the little lowly plants think mustard plants into massive big trees. And he's going to make the massive big trees into nothing. How do we understand that? Jesus is saying then that the kingdom of heaven that is present with us now, the new kingdom starts out very small, very insignificant, but it will one day be great. So great, in fact, that it will overshadow all the kingdoms of the world, which will be brought to nothing. So one day that old Ezekiel 17 tree that came from nothing will one day be made massive so massive that the nations of the world will dwell there. Old expectation, new understanding. Do you see how this works? Jesus says that the kingdom is also like leavening. This gets even better. It starts out minuscule, but it works its way throughout the bread. Now, big deal, leavening, bread. Yeah, kind of, is he just talking about baking? I don't think he is. Normally in Judaism, leavening is kind of a, a kind of a taboo object or substance. It's usually spoken of kind of like a disease. In, in fact, there, there's this moment when Jesus tells his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees because it spreads, right? It's, it's an evil. Leavening was certainly used by Jews. Leavened bread, and you can take this to the bank, leavened bread objectively tastes better than unleavened bread. And they knew that. And they also knew that it was more nutritious than unleavened bread. So they used leavened bread, but leavened bread had no place in the Passover. It had no place in the feasts. And in most circumstances, it wasn't even allowed to be used in sacrifices. That is except one sacrifice. There's one sacrifice, one ceremony where leavening was used. You know what it is? In Leviticus chapter seven, the sacrifice of thanksgiving is to be made with leavened bread. And the priest who throws blood on the altar for the sacrifice of peace receives the leavened bread. So, so think that the priest who intercedes with the Lord and makes peace through a blood offering is the one who receives the leavened bread. Are you tracking with me? Let's think about this. Might that old concept have something to do with the new kingdom? Let's bring out the old with the new. The slow spread of the kingdom is like the slow spread of leavening through dough. And then we're to see that the kingdom, the bread, when it's completed, will belong to the priest, King Jesus, who makes peace through the offering of blood. 
You see what Jesus is doing? He's bringing out the old with the new. The nature of the new kingdom is enlightened by the teachings of the old. There's one last reference to the old in these Matthew 13 parables. And you're seeing the parables like you've never seen them before, aren't you? And this is all fairly new to me as well, but I think this is how we're supposed to understand these. In the parable of the net, in verses 47 through 50, we get this picture of the kingdom of heaven as likened to a net dipping into the sea, gathering all kinds of fish. And we see there in, in those verses that it's like a judgment day picture. Again, judgment day, not a new concept. It's an all over the Old Testament, the Lord will come again and judge. But in this parable, the parable of the net and the fish, on the last day, the good fish are kept and the bad fish are thrown away. Now, the point of that, kind of on a surface level, is exactly the same as the message that we saw in the wheat and the weeds. The kingdom of heaven will have its citizens, the good fish, coexisting with the kingdom of the world the bad fish. But, but why does Jesus retell that same message in a different parable? What's the point of two parables pointing to the same truth? Well, because the point of the parables isn't so much what they symbolize, but what they are alluding to. How the old expectations are fulfilled in the new era. This is another old promise being fulfilled in the new kingdom. And this comes from Ezekiel chapter 47. Ezekiel, at the end of his, his book of prophecy, he's prophesying about the end times. When the presence of God with his people will be reestablished in all its glory. And there's this river flowing out from the temple of God's presence. And it goes into the sour sea or the salty sea and it makes it sweet again. And there are all sorts of fish there. And there are fishermen on the shores of that sea throwing nets into the sea. So what's, what's Jesus doing here by alluding to that? Well, Jesus is telling us here that the kingdom of heaven, that end times kingdom, where the presence of God dwells with his people, that's been inaugurated with him. It's beginning now, but it won't be made complete until the end, until judgment day. And the reason that he uses different parables to illustrate the same point is because the different parables bring out the old with the new in different ways. It's, it's, like, it's like a feast, isn't it? So a good Thanksgiving dinner has more than one dish on the table. Jesus' teaching is a feast. The kingdom of heaven is like this. Taste it with a little Daniel. Isn't it good? Now try it with some Ezekiel. Isn't that tasty? Now Amos and Isaiah, how about some Psalms? It's good, isn't it? It's a rich feast. It's better than what we could have expected. But the old is being fulfilled in the new. You see how this works? That's why our passage this morning is the capstone of all these parables. Jesus is saying in verse 51 to the disciples, do you understand? And whether they understand or not, they say, yes. They understand because clearly Jesus has been teaching something that they should understand. Do you understand? Yes. And then in verse 52, the implication of understanding all that Jesus has just taught is that the way that they are to teach is the same way. 
The implication is go and teach the message of the kingdom the same way that I've taught the kingdom to you. And that's exactly what the disciples will do. They proclaim the message of the kingdom by showing how the old is fulfilled in Jesus and his new kingdom. And you see this happening throughout all of the New Testament. But by way of example, let me give you a little homework this week, because I think this is probably the clearest place that you're going to see this old being brought out with the new. I want you to read the book of Acts, and you can read it fairly quickly. But whenever you get to one of the sermons in the book of Acts, I want you to slow way down. Carefully read Peter's sermons. Read Stephen's sermon on the day that he dies. Look look carefully at, at Philip's conversation with the Ethiopian. Look at what Paul teaches in his sermons in the book of Acts. And do you know what you'll see happening over and over again? The old being brought out with the new. Here's a really good summary of of the message of Acts. From Acts chapter 17, verse 2, Luke tells us what Paul was doing everywhere he went. He tells us, Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. You see that? Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, showing that Jesus is the Christ and that it was necessary that he die. That is bringing out the old and the new. That's what evangelism and disciple-making is, my friends. And both Jews and Gentiles are converted to Christ. They come to know Jesus as Lord, as King, through that message. There's no other message in the New Testament through which people are saved than the message that the Old Testament prophesies that a Christ would come, And he did, and Jesus is him. So the question then for us is when we make disciples, is that how we should do it? It, or, Or is there somehow a new and better way to make disciples? A way that works better? A way that is more relevant? Well, in a word, no! There isn't. Look again at verse 52. Look very carefully with me. Look what Jesus says. Every scribe, or we can say every disciple maker, every disciple maker trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Well, if every disciple maker trained for the kingdom of heaven is bringing out the new and the old, then if one is not bringing out the new and the old in their teaching, then we can conclude Two things. One, they haven't been trained for the kingdom of heaven. And two, they aren't training others for the kingdom of heaven. So listen, before you begin to make disciples, that is, before you begin to tell others what Christianity is, ask yourself, have I been trained in this way? Have I been trained to bring out the old with the new? And I don't mean, have I been to seminary or have you been to seminary? I mean, have you been trained to understand Christianity in light of the whole Bible? 
Do you understand how it all fits together? Can you see the parables in Matthew chapter 13? Can you see the, in those parables the old being brought out with the new? And if it wasn't immediately obvious to you, it's okay, because it wasn't obvious to me either. But the more you study, the more you look for the old being brought out with the new, the more you see it. And if you, if you, if you don't get it yet, if that's not how you read the Bible, that's okay for now. But are you seeking that sort of training? Are you looking for it? Are you reading the Old Testament, looking forward to the new? Or are you reading it as mere moral stories? And do you read the new looking to see how Jesus fulfills the old? How he fulfills that old story? Here, here's what that looks like. And we've seen a lot of it already as we've studied Matthew. When you read Matthew's gospel and you notice that it begins with a genealogy, don't skim past the genealogy. Read those names in Matthew 1 and then go back and find out who those people were. It's going to take some time. Becoming a learner of Jesus Christ takes time. Make the time. But when you look at that genealogy, ask yourself, what role did those people play in the old story? How was God faithful to them? How do those people point us forward to a coming Messiah? What part of God's big story of redemption are those people in that genealogy in? Where do they fit? What do they teach us about the nature of this kingdom? And when you read that genealogy and study those people and you find out that some of them were notorious sinners, what does that mean in light of Christ? And when you notice how some of those people in that genealogy were non-Jews, what does that mean? What does that tell us about who Christ is and what type of kingdom he's bringing? And when you see how there are people in that genealogy that God made massive world-changing promises to, what does that mean in light of Jesus? What is Matthew saying is important about those names from the Old Testament? What is he teaching? And then, and then when you finish Matthew's gospel and you get to Luke's gospel and you notice how Luke tells the genealogy differently than the way that Matthew does. And rather than being at the very beginning in chapter one, Luke waits until after Jesus's baptism. What's significant about that? Don't think that that's just a random placing of this lineage of the Savior of the world. What is Luke telling us about how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus and how Jesus is the Christ? To be trained in the new and the old means that when you're reading Matthew and he quotes Isaiah, you know you've got to go back and read what he's quoting. And you read it in context. And you ask yourself, what did Isaiah mean when he said these things? And then you look forward to the way that Matthew interprets it. And you say, well, what does Matthew mean that it is fulfilled in these prophecies from Isaiah? And when, when Matthew quotes the Psalms, you go back and read that whole Psalm. Or when he quotes Daniel or Ezekiel, you read those passages in context to see the richness of what Christ is truly fulfilling. You don't have to have a seminary degree to do that. You just need a desire for understanding and a love for the word of God. 
Evangelism and discipleship then is more than just a few handpicked verses, isn't it? The whole glorious picture of who Jesus is, is only hinted at in John 3.16. To say that John 3.16 is Christianity is to find a little piece of hair from a lion's tail and say, I found a lion. It's bigger. It's greater. It's more massive than that little piece of hair that we found. Think big, Christian. To be trained and to train others means we read all of John to get the full picture of how Jesus is the word of God, the son of God, how he is one with the father, how Jesus is Yahweh himself. We'll understand then that John's gospel is not about whosoever believeth. John's gospel is about who Jesus is. And that's the message that we take to others. When we're telling someone about the gospel and we say God loves them and sent his son to die for them, we as Christians trained in the new and the old, we need to be prepared to tell them who God is and why it's surprising that God would love them. And how it even is that God has a son and what it means for that son to be our Lord. And we need to be able to show them from the whole big picture, big picture Bible perspective. And the only way we can do that is by knowing how the New Testament interprets and fulfills the Old Testament. That is the constant training that I'm undergoing even as a pastor, and that you should be undergoing as a Christian, as disciple of Christ. That's how we're to read the Bible. That's how we're to interpret and teach the Bible. One of the passages that clues us into this, we find in the book of Hebrews, and I'll end with this. Yesterday, as Dustin and I were, Dustin Saunders and I, I won't talk about myself in the third person, Dustin Saunders and I were, were talking about this subject, and he reminded me how the writer to the Hebrews tells that church in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need to be taught again the basics of Christianity. And what did the writer to the Hebrews mean by that? What he meant was that this church had been had, had, had received the gospel and they knew they had been Christians so long that they should have been sufficiently trained to teach others to be disciple makers or scribes. And if you read that verse in its context, you see what the writer says they should be teaching. And this is the message that the writer of the Hebrews tells the Hebrews that they should be teaching others that Jesus intercedes for us before the Father. That is his priestly role. And he's a priest, not in the order of Aaron and the Levites. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then he spends three chapters, three whole chapters, telling us what it means that Jesus comes from the order of Melchizedek. In other words, teaching others about who Jesus is and what it means to be saved by him means teaching our need for an intercessor and how he fulfills that need. And not out of the blue, not de facto, but
but from the prophecies and expectations of the Old Testament. All of us, we must all be seeking to be trained to bring out the old with the new. Only then, only then can we begin to even get a glimpse at the glories of who Jesus really is. And only then can our disciple making and training others begin to bear the fruit that Christ meant it to. Amen. Well, let's pray in, in conclusion. Lord, what a beautiful interwoven picture of who you are and what you're doing. 